and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 16th of July with me, Ian Welsh. At Innovation Forum's recent Future of Food conference, Taco Derridin, Director of Cocoa Sustainability at Cargill, and Nico Debenham, Vice President and Head of Sustainability at Barry Calibo, joined my colleague Toby Webb to discuss supply chain traceability and how accessing data can drive positive value chain impacts. It was a fascinating session. We have some highlights coming up a little later. That's to come, but first, some sustainable business news. The UN Convention on Biological Diversity has set out ambitious Paris Climate Agreement-style goals that aim to reverse ecological damage to the planet this decade. Among the targets are reducing pesticide use by two-thirds, eliminating plastic pollution, removing $500 billion of harmful annual government subsidy, and having the rate of invasive species introduction. The aim is for 30% of the planet's oceans to be protected by 2030, and for a third of climate crisis mitigation to be provided via nature by the same date. The proposals have come through financial and scientific negotiations and are now to be put before governments before final agreement is due to be reached at a summit in China, currently scheduled for October. It is likely though that this will be pushed back into early 2022. If adopted, the measures would of course mean significant change, and not least for the world's agricultural sector. A new Net Zero Insurance Alliance has been established to speed up the global move to net zero emissions via sympathetic underwriting and risk management. The alliance was launched by some of the sector's biggest players, including AXA, Aviva, Munich Re, Swiss Re and Zurich. Alliance signatories have made a number of commitments, including setting science-based targets every five years and reporting in progress year on year. They will set guidelines for underwriting so as to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in portfolios. The sector has been under pressure to align with the net zero transition for some time. As recently as last month, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on the insurance companies to do more, particularly regarding underwriting for the fossil fuel sector. For many companies, their route to net zero emissions will involve some carbon offsetting, and the sector will have to grow dramatically to satisfy the demand. Inevitably, there are concerns that this growth will attract elements of greenwashing, which is why former Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, established a task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets in 2020, aiming to identify the barriers to offsetting schemes scaling credibly. To this end, the task force has announced the establishment of an independent governance body, with a global remit by the end of the year. The body will be set the task of overseeing a unified voluntary carbon market with high quality credits and legal standards. Some estimates suggest that the current offset market will have to expand to 15 times its size by 2030 to allow business to align with the Paris Agreement's 1.5 Celsius trajectory. By 2050, the sector may be around 160 times bigger than 2020. Challenges around double counting and varying regional standards are among the problems that need to be addressed, and a set of core carbon principles has been established. The hope is that these will become embedded into national legal standards via international agreement. The Biden administration is seemingly upping the ante on companies with supply chains connected to Xinjiang province in China, which has become associated with significant forced labour risks. A new advisory outlines the legal risks that companies in the US face if they don't ensure that they are free of any links with Xinjiang. Companies face potential criminal and civil action. The US federal government, if reports are to be believed, has taken the view that companies are not taking the Xinjiang forced labour risks and subsequent reputational and legal risks seriously enough. The Innovation Forum team is working on our Autumn Conference programme. On the 27th to 29th of September is the Future of Climate Action US event, focusing on how to tackle greenhouse gases in supply chains. Already signed up as speakers and panellists are senior representatives from Kellogg, Alaska Airlines, AB InBev, PepsiCo, Oxfam America and more. If you're quick, you can save $300 on three-day passes if you register by close on the 16th of July. 
This year's Future of Plastics event will be held from 11th to 13th October. We'll have three days of frank and open debate with leading brands about how to reach stretching targets. Panellists from Unilever, Iceland, Coca-Cola European Partners, The Body Shop and Ecover are among the experts already confirmed. If you'd like to attend, book passage before 23rd of July and save £225. And save the date for Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which will be held this year from the 30th of November to the 2nd of December. Full details have been released over the coming weeks, but we're looking forward to once again bringing together all the relevant people to ensure we have three days of robust debate and discussion. At the recent Future of Food conference, Takotar Hayden, Director of Coco Sustainability Cargill and Nico Debenham, Vice President and Head of Sustainability at Barry Calibo, led discussion on supply chain traceability and use of data with my colleague Toby Webb. Coming up are some highlights of the session, including insight into how the Cargill Coco Promise and Barry Calibo's Forever Chocolate initiatives are driving positive impacts. We join the session as Toby asks Nico how Barry Calibo uses data to drive traceability. Data and the traceability related to that data is a requirement on many fronts. So, for example, in 2016, we made a commitment called Forever Chocolate to get to 500,000 cocoa farms out of poverty, eradicate child labour, be carbon and forest positive and 100% sustainable by 2025. Report on that in a verified way annually. And the only way we can do that is have huge amounts of data that relate to poverty, relates to monitoring of, of child labour, etc. In addition... We have a huge requirement to report to customers on programs. But there's, you know, there's a long list of KPIs that we have to report against. And customers really are looking to be reporting on impact, not action. No one's interested in action anymore. People want to understand the outcome and you need accurate data to, to be able to report on that. There are significant increased requirements for under due diligence, you know, ESG regulation in Switzerland, European Union due diligence regulation initiative happening where we'll probably be regulated on due diligence on human rights and the environment within two to four years. And also we desperately need good quality data just for our operations to run the sustainability operations that we have. So for example, our farm services business, we need data to create farm business plans for the farmers so that they have a five-year view into the future on their farms. We use data to create what we call the risk-based child labour model, where we use algorithms from data collected to identify the highest risk areas or co-ops for child labour so we can concentrate our primary efforts on those so that obviously under child protection methodology, the protocol has to go where the risk is first, and we can do that by using data. We have farm polygons, which means the map of the outside of the farm, so we can identify likelihood of deforestation or illegal farming but also can relate those polygons because of the size of the farm to the deliveries that a farmer is making and seeing if they're over delivering so what we call the yield calculator which is again is an automated system in the, in the database we have a system called Cachile, which has about 400,000 farmers under master data of which about th nearly 300,000 has what we call full data that's 150 census data points and then for polygons of all of their farms, in addition to further data points input on site by coaches for farm business plans and then social welfare officers adding even more data on child labour monitoring and remediation systems. And then we have digital traceability from farm to first purchase point, 
And if that is required through on a segregated supply chain, it can be from farm right the way through to the finished product. And then you can relate that traceability back to the data. But it's important to understand that traceability is only a tool to increase transparency and accountability. The efficiency of any traceability system in ensuring sustainability depends on the type and the quality of the data that is collected and more importantly on how the data is used to support, improve and monitor. There's a tendency, and this is something that we've had to really concentrate hard on, is to collect, 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 but then not actually use data efficiently and use it to generate an outcome. But I mean, it's a massive part of our program and I liken it to driving a car through a forest using a television screen, but with no windscreen, just a television screen. And with data, if you've got poor and low amounts of data, the television screen is only coming on once every 10 seconds. Whereas if you've got good quality data and lots of it, the screen's on all the time. So you know exactly where to go. Could you just explain a bit about the polygons reference that you mentioned? That's not a word I hear very often. And I wonder if, if perhaps the audience is in the same situation, Nico. So just tell us a bit more about what that means. Okay, so you basically literally map the outside of all of the farms of a, that a farmer has. So in cocoa, on average, a farmer will have somewhere like two to three plots. And you map the outside of each of his plots so you know exactly where it is on the map and you know the exact amount of land that they have. So the asset in which you can use to help them drive themselves out of poverty. And then inside the polygon, you can start plotting where the cocoa is or where diversified crop, maybe like maize or rice has been grown, etc. But the most important thing is the polygon enables you to know exactly where the farm is, what size it is, and that it's not in a protected area, for example. And by taking the size, you can then match the deliveries from the farmer. And if the average yield is, let's say, 500 kilos a hectare and that farmer's delivered 10 tonnes, you know there's something gone wrong. And that he's probably receiving cocoa from someone else, which may be from the forest. And that cocoa is coming through and it may be a co-op mechanism, but it's just to ensure that you're not over delivering from a farm that cannot possibly have delivered that amount of cocoa. How is that information collected? What's the combination of human and technology to get there? There's quite a lot of human, sadly. We've tried drones, but the problems with drones is, if I don't know if you've ever been on a cocoa farm, but you, if you've never been on a cocoa farm, you wouldn't even know it's a cocoa farm. You still think it's part of the, the rainforest. So drones, it's almost impossible. So you have to really just use a GPS device. It's embedded in the mobile phones under the Kachili app, the K app, as it's called. You get guidance from the farmer, and they will show you where the outline of their farm is. And you just have to walk the boundary. It's simple as that. So I'm afraid there's quite a lot of human element, but we haven't managed to come up with technology to solve that problem yet because of the landscape in which these farms are placed. What about things like LIDAR or satellite? I'm pretty sure I remember one of your colleagues, I think it was, I think he was a board member coming to one of our conferences a couple of years ago and very excitedly telling me about the potential for satellite technology to do all sorts of things, uh, both on the social and on the mapping side. Where's that up to? Yeah, it's progressing. And it's based on the fact that we can have much higher levels of pixels. In other words, we can narrow it down to three by three meters, for example, and then start to understand whether that leaf or foliage is cocoa or something else. But it is very, very difficult. We've still got a bit of a way to go. I mean, it's much easier. We're using it much more for palm where you can see incidents of forest cover reduction, and then you start calling out the local mills and so on. 
So it's much easier for palm than it is for cocoa at the moment. We believe we will get there, but we need a bit more steps in the partnership that we have with ETH to get to that point. But you can't use it to map farms. It's not that accurate. Yes, it's hard to see. It's, it's basically at the moment that algorithm or some AI is going to solve that problem. I mean, it's entirely it's possible that it might. But of course, the sense checking of that will have to be huge, right? Because the last thing you'd want is that technology to be not accurate. And the problem is that if you look at farm landscape in somewhere like Europe, you've got defined fields that you can plot around. You can even get apps to plot the fields and you, you can just do it on the map. You don't need to get out there and start walking. Whereas if you go to a cocoa farm in West Africa and you say to the farmer, where's your boundary? You say, you see the big tree over there? And then you go and then 10 left and there's a little stone, you know, there's a, a boulder in the corner. And then you come back to the telegraph pole over there. And that's the biggest problem is that there's no defined boundaries. At the moment, the only way we can really do it is to walk around. It does sound very expensive. I'm afraid it is quite expensive. How many cocoa farms did you mention are in your 2025 target? But we're 500,000 in the 2020 target. So, that, you know, we're probably going to be mapping a million plots, something like wow. that. Maybe even more than that. So what we're doing is we are constantly, every year, we're mapping 100,000 farmers, something like that. That's incredible. And what have you learned about using data better? Because you mentioned it's all very well having lots of data. Knowing what to do with it is at least as important as getting it. If we turn on the social side, for example, that's really complex. Tell us a bit more about the sort of data collection that leads to better analysis on that side of things. You're collecting census data from the farmers and the family, and you're also adding what child labour monitoring and remediation data. So you're interviewing children. There's lots and lots of data points that go in to understanding and finding incidents. This is happening anyway under child labour monitoring and remediation. But what we've understood is that we've got to become more efficient. Instead of doing a blanket check of every single farmer at the same time, we've got to go to where the risk is. So we've got to understand where the risk is. So what we've done is we've taken some critical data points that will indicate risk and then overlaid them with, with community data. There's about, I don't know, 20 data points where the, the algorithm in the database will enable us to identify and categorize a group of farmers, red, amber, or green, particularly when you've overlaid whether there's lack of schools in that area or lack of water sources in that area, etc. That enables us to be more efficient in the use of our resources by going to the red farmers first, amber farmers second, and green farmers last. So that's a good way of showing how to use data. Another one is farm business plans. Our coaches will go onto the farm with their tablet and draw data from the Kachili database so that they know predominantly about 70% of what they need to know before they get to the farm. And then they add observations on the farm into the FS app, as it's called, around tree age, some incidents of disease, perhaps, things like this. And then the app automatically calculates three options for a farm business plan. And the farmer can then choose and add or take away some elements of those options. The system automatically changes the projection of the business plan for the next five years. And then you give it to the farmer and that becomes the application for farm services and credit under farm services. So they get the support to fulfill that business plan by the application of the credit going to our, our service provider, which is a company called Advance. 
and also then is supporting the farmers act understanding these activities on the farm so that's again another use of the data one of the biggest challenges with these types of databases is collecting data that it's just not relevant and not used. And as you rightly said before, it's very expensive because somebody's got to sit there in front of a farmer and, you know, farmers sitting there thinking, how many more blooming questions has this fellow got to ask me? I've got work to do. And if you're collecting 150 data points, you better be using every one because it's costing you money and it's pissing off your farmer because they get asked questions the entire time. It's what we call census fatigue. So what we're constantly doing is reassessing, are we using that data point and what's it for? Is it really needed? Is it really necessary? If it's not, get rid of it. And if you think it's an interesting thing, then do a sample set, just do a thousand farmers under a sample set and then take the study and the learning from that. Don't do a blanket on every single farmer. What is the data for? Is it due diligence requirements? Is it for operations? Is it for a customer who wants a KPI? It has to have a relevant need. Otherwise, it's just a waste of resource and time and an annoyance for the farmer. A slightly broader question before I turn to Taco. There are some, Nico, who say that farms, in many cases, are getting smaller with inheritance and land changes. And that even as they are with the ageing farmers and the size of farms, doesn't matter what you do with yield or technology. These farms are just too small in many cases to be economically viable in the long term. What role can data play in encouraging farmers to collaborate more together? Perhaps not going as far as the co-op model, which we know has some significant drawbacks, but perhaps cooperate more together to take advantage of, of greater scale, which, as we know, in the history of farming and smallholders, is something that has often happened. Yeah, I mean, I think one of our beliefs is that the first step is to proof of ownership which has been a challenge. And we're working with a company, with some guys and with a company called Meridia to create land title documentation, trying to make it economically viable. And we include it in the support package that we give to farmers from our Cocoa Horizons Foundation. And the principle behind that is that if you want to partner up with a neighboring farmer and you're kind of, in a way, you're pooling your land resource then at least you've got to prove ownership somehow because otherwise your partners in your pool of maybe five or six are going to want evidence that it's your land that you're farming. Now, the first steps that we've taken, which is more related to women's empowerment as well, but it does include farmers' involvement, is VSLA's Village Savings and Loans Association, is cooperation of working together. One of the challenges that we've had historically, and I don't really understand quite why at the moment, in, in Africa, it's quite difficult to get farmers to work together on each other's farms. In Ecuador, we had a program about five or six years ago, or maybe, maybe probably even longer than that, actually, where it was under a, I can't remember what, what it was called, but basically it's called a Minga system, where the farmers, they all group together in groups of about a maximum 20 farmers all those farmers work on each other's farms. So if there's pruning that needs to be done, then all 20 prune one farm. And then they go to the next farm and they go to that and then they take care of all the farms. So they work it all together, more like a cooperative system where the co-op the co is actually resourced by the land. So you're an incorporated owner of shares in the co-op and your investment is your land into the co-op. Now, again, we looked at that, but that was a long time ago, about 20 years ago. And that it failed because we couldn't get land ownership documents all these databases that are being created but in the private sector tacos mine olams everybody else's 
I don't believe it's the way forward, honestly. And I think going to your point about how to reverse these two small farms and so on, and I'm slightly kind of going around the houses here, but I just want to explain. I think it's critically important that there is like a data hub that has all the farmers on it with one farmer code relevant for everybody. And that that hub enables people to put data into it and take data out of it under license, governed by the governance of each country with data protection embedded and, you know, fines and whatever, you know, to, to ensure that everyone is protected. But it would enable us to put data in and log on to a farmer code and see that farmer hasn't had any census yet. So you go and collect the census, log it in, and then TACO can see it and use it. I can see it and use it. I would imagine that probably a huge number of my farmers are on TACO's database, and I've probably got a huge number of TACO's farmers on my database. So the amount of wasted resource where we've both gone and collected data on the same farmer, and probably Olam and Ecom and Cargill and Sukdan and so on at the same time, Whereas if, if it was a pooled hub, you can then draw from that and use that hub, for example, for land ownership documentation. Another way would be, for example, for credit rating of farmers. You know, one of the reasons why mainstream banking or what I call near mainstream banking doesn't support smallholder farmers is they don't know where to rate them in the risk portfolio. Now, if you get a credit rating agency, a, a derivative of someone like Experian using this data overlaying it with mobile phone data, they can put it, give them a rating and say, this portfolio of farmers has this rating. So when you lend to them, you can put them in that category of risk. That's the first steps towards getting farmers to mainstream banking. People always think it's around the farmer side, but it's also the fact that banks don't know where to rate the risks, so they can't put them in their portfolio. You know, there's so many opportunities if data is quality, accessible, well-governed. And I think going back to your original point, but I do believe it's the cornerstone, this data hub would be the cornerstone of starting to bring farmers' land back together and creating much more viable farms and opportunities. Thank you. I mean, the idea is not a new one in the sense that it has form. You know, SEDEX, for example, imperfect as it may be, has attempted to do the same thing. And there are also other initiatives around, you know, factory audits. I think it was one factory complex in India, I believe it was India or maybe Cambodia, they got audited 23 times in one year to 17 different audit standards to the point where they had the fire extinguishers on sliders to move them three inches up and down depending on the audit requirement, <laughs> which is completely yeah. ludicrous. And Celex was then set up to try and solve that problem. So the idea has some history and there's, I imagine, some learnings there from other industries. Taco, yeah. um, you've been listening attentively to all this. What would you like to add to the conversation? What do you think of Nico's idea? It sounds like a good one to me. Well, obviously, I fully agree with everything that Nico has said. The point is very much around transparency, traceability and data. And how do you transfer that information and how do you make it available for the various stakeholders in the supply chain? We talk about data, but I think also we need to make sure that we do not underestimate that actually a lot of data is still not digital in, in West Africa. Unfortunately, I mean, we're making great strides there. It's getting more common, but a lot of the data collection actually still happens on paper and therefore the technology drive the digital technology drive is extremely important what nico mentions as well on making it accessible making it available for a various group of stakeholders i think for that the definitions the misalignment on definitions is still something where we need to do a lot of work traceability is a big word like a sustainability is a big word but how can we unpack that if we talk traceability, it needs to be digital, at least at that first mile, 
digitalization effort that needs to happen and it's already happening as far as we are concerned. Data quality, the cost of having not just the wrong data, but basically useless data. I mean, that's a huge inefficiency. I'm pretty sure we go through the same sort of awareness cycles in our companies, but also as an industry. What can we do better to avoid the limitations that wrong data actually give you relative to the benefit that good data gives you? Because I think these two things disturb each other a lot. And then I think what's the real important part, because like Barry Kalabat, like others, we're working on this data platforms. And I think as a company and as a private sector entity, uh, what needs to make profit, do things efficiently. I think in a way it's impossible to think that you can start as a collective. I mean, you need to figure out how this works in your operations. Very often it's tied to other data which you consider essential for you as a business to operate. But I am hopeful and thinking that where we are now in the cocoa sector, there is sufficient, I would say, learnings and capacity being built. Companies have come to a certain level that we can start to think more open source. And indeed, open source, what does that mean? It's a big word. It requires actually also needs to uh, give and take a bit. And it requires that we're actually learning that maybe together we can go further than going alone. While we have to organize by ourselves, we have to think open source. And on the sustainability debate, uh, I think it's important where the private sector eh, come to realization that we can only do as much, but the enabling environment, whether it's banks, but also whether it's governments or other institutions is as important as the work that we put in. So I think that realization is there. There is foundational work on digitalization and data. How do we bring that together in an efficient way? Who are the ones who can convene that? In which platform can that happen? Traceability and data, it's a means to an end, right? I mean, it needs to solve the problems that we know that we're aiming to address. It needs to address these challenges around in the environmental and the social. So also, if we do not find a way how to make this data relevant for there where these issues are, I think we're missing a point. Giving ownership to cooperatives, as was mentioned, we do think that that piece of ownership is tough, but essential. And only by making it an ownership and integrated into a cooperative business model, they start to see the value of having their data and their data systems. So as always, it's a bit of both, but ownership of data at the co-op and farm level, so they can actually benefit as much as transferring that data and information digitally across the supply chain, whether it's that then is traceability or blockchain or whatever you want to call it, which technology will come, that then will automatically happen. But for me, these two things are distinctively important in the success. I imagine if the two of you are talking about the need for open source collaboration, the other actors in the industry are probably doing the same, although there's probably always one who doesn't like the idea. That's typically the case. Whose job is it to make that happen? Is this something for the World Cocoa Foundation to do? I mean, is there a particular actor in play at the moment who could be placed to drive this? Or, or is a, a new collaborative organisation needing to be set up by those companies wanting to contribute to this open source data sharing initiative? And indeed, we're having this discussion, and I do think the work that we do also collectively through the World Cocoa Foundation has enabled this, that we're having these discussions. I haven't figured out the exact perfect owner of this platform. And for me, it's often not even who will own it. It's also how do you convene it together? And I'm more thinking of a group of interested stakeholders 
But as we have learned through, for instance, co-coaction as an industry, learning to work together amongst almost like, you know, industrial peers is a learning journey. And now you need to bring other stakeholders, i.e. also urging governments together. We have to go to the same learning journey in collaborative efforts, but it doesn't mean it's going to be a smooth journey. I don't think there's one convener. I think we should all take ownership for this to happen. And then I'm sure we will find the right convener. And you can think of a national platform. You can think of a research institution. I think that clearing house of data is, needs to be rock solid. And if that happens, there's a lot of work being done by companies who can then add that, that interoperability of, of those platforms. I think we will be able to succeed. Also a bit hopeful that indeed advanced technologies will help us to get there. Although the main challenge, I don't think is necessarily technology. The technology will come first is how do we convene the right partners with the right level of trust that we can actually agree that we all will benefit from an open source while we'll continue to have our own source in parallel with that. Yeah, I know the Ghanaian and Cote d'Ivoire governments are collaborating now on a new COCO initiative. I had a chat with Alex Asanvo the other day about this, who former Mars or current Mars, who's been working on this. In the case, on that point of sort of who could do this, do you see potential for existing or a new organization or a new or does it need a new organization to come in and, and help coordinate this? There are comments here in the chat about the complexity of it. So I appreciate it's not going to be easy. Well I would suggest that the biggest opportunity that we have is the due diligence regulation initiative in Europe because it comes with a kind of support funding for the initiative to have the or to en enable the most affected origins to be able to conform as it were to the regulation one of the cornerstone challenges is data one of the biggest requirements for due diligence is data so with the billion euro check that they're promising to write i think they should lead a convening of the two governments to set up a hub which then we are licensed to contribute to and draw from with protocols. And, you know, I notice in the chat that it's been pointed out that this is a massive challenge. It, absolutely. I totally agree. There's, there's legal implications. There are protocol implications. There's technology implications. The more we lean into the problem, the better the outcome. And I think it, there's a massive opportunity for Europe to drive and convene industry and the government, origin governments, together to work on how to create this hub and how it should be used and what the licensing requirements would be and etc etc that's all for this week don't forget to go to the innovation forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts and to take advantage of the launch discounts for the conferences coming up in the autumn but that's it for now i've been Ian welsh and until next week goodbye <laughs>